Welcome to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Australians participate in the global film industry, sort of boxing well above our weight. Greg Bassler was talking to another Hollywood producer and he found himself asking, why? About, you know, why Australia? Why Australians? And this American producer had an interesting take on an affliction you've heard about a couple of times already this season of Lumina. It's funny the way they come around to it because sometimes we'll look at the tall poppy syndrome is something that, it, that, that you can sort of be proud of, but sometimes it's not because you're not really as often celebrating success. But the thing about the tall poppy syndrome that is good and that he identified was, hey, you have this tall poppy syndrome thing, which means that the Aussies are humble. Humility is an enormous enabler within Hollywood, within the global film industry. Tall poppy syndrome, yeah. We've heard about how it makes us shy on the international stage, how Australian creatives can find it hard to put our hands up, to say, hey, look at me, I've got a great idea. But in Hollywood, for better or worse, it's one of our greatest strengths. Americans love working with us because we do work hard. We, we don't stand in front of them so the camera sees us. You know, we're just in the background doing what we do. I mean, you sort of know about the people in front of the camera, but a lot of the time you don't because a lot of the time at the second tier, there's a whole lot of Aussies. I'm Fenella Kernerbone and this is Lumina, a podcast from the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. You're listening to season two, all about the opportunities for creatives in the future economy. This time, the mark Australian creatives can make internationally. Like Greg said, we punch above our weight in all sorts of global creative industries. What does that mean for our relationships with other countries and for our reputation as a place to live, visit and do business? You're going to hear about the enormous impact of our film industry on a global scale, the special relationship it's forged between Australia and the United States and the growing one with China and the role you as a creative practitioner can play by thinking about your career in a global context. So I've been working in the Hollywood industry for almost 34 years now. Greg Basser has seen our creative relationships with both these countries transform completely. I'm Greg Basser. I'm chairman and CEO of Gentle Giant Media Group, a independent production company based in Los Angeles and Melbourne. He spent much of his career at Village Roadshow Entertainment Group. And from October 1998 through to June last year, we released 100 films that had global box office of about over $18 billion. And I think it was 17 Oscars and hits such as The Matrix trilogy, The Oceans, 11, 12, 13, 8... A number of Clint Eastwood great movies, Gran Torino, Sully, American Sniper. In episode one, we heard how Australian filmmaking doesn't operate under a big studio model, that studios don't generally roll in with lots of cash to fund a film. Village Roadshow Entertainment is an exception. These films brought a heap of work to the Australian film industry. Of the last 50 films Greg made with the company, all of them had an Australian in a major role, either in front or behind the camera. These days, he runs his own company, Gentle Giant Media Group. The thing that we're trying to do at Gentle Giant is take 
my experience and time in Hollywood and my experience and time in Australia and the media entertainment industry in Australia and sort of act as a bridge bringing Hollywood, whether it's film or TV, to Australia, but with a specific purpose of engaging Australian creative talent. We've been operating under the radar for probably 25 years as a country for sourcing talent in front and behind the camera. Greg saw the Australian industry grow in his time at Village Roadshow. Our first film we released in October 1998 was Practical Magic. Quite serendipitous for me, actually, because that was Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman, as you know. And the last film that I did at Village was Ocean's 8, which was uh, Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett. The second film we released was Analyze This, and the third film we released was a film that no one understood or wanted to do called The Matrix. The Matrix had a huge impact on how Australian filmmakers work internationally. It was a defining moment in the film industry. We spoke the same language, they liked our food, they liked our weather, and they liked working with us because we're good to work with. So as Australia's role behind the camera grew in Hollywood, the screen industry's contribution to the local economy became more and more apparent. Governments have increasingly understood that film production is one of those industries, like IT, like space, that is a multiplier effect in a community. You spend $1 making a film, you're probably creating $5 to $10 of economic activity. You're certainly creating $1.50 to $2 at least of GDP. And for every job that you create on an ongoing basis in an industry like film, you create five jobs in the greater community. The great thing about our business is that we're making a product that the world wants that has huge multiplier effects. The economic benefits can be great, but Greg says the other benefits, the soft power and the long-term benefits of thriving creative industries, well, they're less understood. You know, it's the industry's fault as well because I think we were often focusing too much on economic benefits, which... I still say are enormous. And instead of looking at, you know, what really matters, what really matters is the growing of an industry, the building of skills and jobs for the future, jobs for my kids and their kids and and the future generations. It's easy for creative industries to be labelled, you know, in a certain way, that they're there to be supported without a return on investment. I think as an industry, we're often treated the same way as subsidised manufacturing, such as the automobile business. But the Australian film industry, it's proof that creativity can change the makeup of an economy. And I think government in Australia is beginning to see that. And you look to some of the moves that have been made, whether it's Queensland putting the film group under the premier, or actually I think the real model is South Australia, where Steve Marshall moved film out of the arts and put it under industry development innovation, I think it is. They actually see it as a driver of their local economy, a way to attract real talent and young talent into Adelaide and into the you know broader South Australian economy. And I think that's the direction that government has begun to go in Australia, and I think that's the right answer. So we have this stellar reputation. You guys are humble. You work really hard. We can't get enough of you. For animation, effects, design, production, cinematography. But we're not creating our own IP as a result of it. Here's where we see the flip side of that tall poppy syndrome. 
We're so great behind the scenes that our own content creation industry isn't as robust as it could be. Greg sees Australia's creative future as generators of ideas as well as makers. Just like Zare Nalbandian from Animal Logic, Greg sees enormous value in IP creation in Australia. And that's what he's focusing on at Gentle Giant. I am in that unique position of being an Australian who's worked sort of at the highest levels of Hollywood with the major studios for so long that I have those relationships. But I'm Australian, so by being Australian, by being a producer on, let's say, on a film from the get-go, engaging and bringing together Australian writers or directors, that's a great way to sort of focus Hollywood or the global industry, if you like, into the Australian market where we're developing and, and aiming to make Australia as a, if you like, a focal point of Australia being original IP, not just fantastic facilities, fantastic locations, fantastic talent, both in front and behind the camera, but also having Australians be the ones that sort of initiate the IP. For the Australian film and television industry to mature, we need to move beyond providing just services to generating original ideas. That's part of what our goal is, is to make people want to look to Australia for their directors, for their writers, so that we can move our industry to the next phase where we're providing fantastic service, we're providing fantastic locations and, and talent, and we have at least incentives that match the rest of the world. But if we can now make Australia a source of original IP, that's when we really grow up. You know, Aussies are inquisitive, and I, I think we have lots of good stories to tell we're very outward looking because that's what we have have to be. We're, we're I think, um, I recently heard an Australian you know leader say, "We're we're a country of traders. We look outward." It's not just the United States looking to Australia as a collaborator in film and TV. So far, we've been focusing on the relationships Greg has seen grow in Hollywood. But alongside this, there's another story at play, and it's one that will propel Australian filmmaking into the future. Very, very young audiences in China. I think the average age of a cinema goer in China is about 20. Greg has had a relationship with China's film industry since the mid-1990s. I started travelling the world, helping Village set up its multiplex cinemas, first in Asia and then in Europe. And in fact, we opened the first multiplex in China back in 1996. We also closed the first multiplex in China back in 1996 because at that time, the product just wasn't available. Since then, things have changed in the Chinese film market. When the global financial crisis came along, the one part of the world that actually kept going okay was Australia and Southeast Asia. So that was an area where we were looking to for strategic partnerships and it was sort of stumbled across what was happening in China at that stage. The box office, I think, was under a billion dollars at the time. It's now, you know, over $9 billion and probably on track in the next two years to exceed the US box office. Greg saw an opportunity there for Village Roadshow, but also for Australia and Australian film and television makers more broadly. We have a couple of enormous advantages we recognised China seven years before the US in 1972 when Gough Whitlam came in. We are in the same time zone. Since about 1970, we haven't worried about 
whole lot of the geopolitical issues that were still prevalent in America in the 90s and still maybe a little bit today still. So, yes, we know they have a different ideology. We have a lot more, I think, open point of view towards China. Remember, the Chinese first came out to Australia in the 1850s and worked in the goldfields and stayed. There's a reason why almost every country town had a takeaway Chinese food store when I was growing up in the in the 60s and the 70s because the Chinese stayed and were part of our community. Geographically, diplomatically, Australia is positioned to have a close relationship with China and our creative industries are a huge part of that. China's our biggest trading partner. And I think one of the reasons for that is not just because we're resource rich and they want those resources uh, as a developing country, they just find us easy to deal with. Releasing and promoting films in China has its own challenges. China is a censorship market, not a rating market, which means that all films and other video content, TV streamed content, is subject to censorship that is based on it being suitable for all ages. So call it six to 80. And so the censors will look at it for the suitability in their minds for everyone six to 80. And then it's a command economy. So the government reserves the right to say, we're okay with you addressing this issue or not that issue. And that's that's fine. That's their particular political system. Before you can show one inch of a movie to anybody in the public... So when you're getting to finish it, or you might still be making it, you can't show anything relating to a film unless and until you have your final exhibition or screening permit. You only get that when you finish the film. And making films there is pretty different to making films in the United States or in Australia. Before you can make a Chinese film, you need a shooting permit. So you have to submit your your script to the censors and they'll make some comments on it, you know, someone else giving you notes on your uh, script, and they'll approve the script. But the infancy of the Chinese film industry means they're ahead in other ways. What they do in China is they're very targeted, but they're ahead of the West when it came to know your customer, targeting your customers. The Chinese industry really boomed alongside smart devices, streaming and social media. They're not having to adapt a heritage industry to a new digital world the way that Hollywood is. And in many ways, those things in China have evolved together. They worked out how to individualise every film so that they targeted their marketplace. There was a lot of social media. So um, the China equivalent of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And when you started making a film, you would set up a a social media account for each of the stars, for the director, for for other important people to do with the film. In the early 2000s, Greg was introduced to Hong Kong film producer Bill Kong. Bill Kong is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, House of Flying Daggers, Hero, the producer of those. He's sort of the grandfather, godfather of the Chinese film industry. Greg was visiting Hong Kong and the two of them met up. I don't know why, because there was no particular reason, but Bill took an instant liking to me and sort of became my godfather, my friend and mentor in the Chinese film industry. And he invited me to join in an incubator company called Irresistible Films. The incubator was all about discovering young writing and directing talent for the Chinese marketplace. I remember Bill saying to me, Greg, 
just count on losing your investment. I'll lose it as slowly as I possibly can. It was a relationship that continued to grow alongside the Chinese film industry. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of um, production companies, but no one was doing anything. Um, and part of it was just because it was a, a nascent new industry where, you know, the thing about film production or TV production, nothing beats experience. And it was just, you know, it was pre-adolescent. Great, great stories to be told, but, you know, trying to find uh, the right beat of a start, a middle and an end in a film and transitions from scenes, it was just something that they hadn't learnt. Then in 2017, Bill Kong brought Greg a new idea for a film called The Whistleblower. I'd always wanted to be in his mainstream film, so it was sort of... Uh, yes, now, what's that film about? Greg signed on as a producer. It has been confirmed this morning that a Gulfstream 650 aircraft crashed into the ocean near the Twelve Apostles. It's the story of an expat Chinese executive working for an Australian mining company in Australia who ends up blowing the whistle on issues within the company. Search and rescue aircraft located floating wreckage this afternoon. No survivors have been located. Industrial or corporate thriller with, with romance thrown in is sort of sim simplifying a bit, but that's really what it is. We examined the elements in the film and it occurred to us that this was a film that fit fair and squarely in the co-production treaty uh, between Australia and China. Australia has probably about a dozen co-production treaties um, with various countries, not with America. America, to my knowledge, has no co-production treaties. But basically under each of these co-production treaties, there's a whole lot of rules you have to follow. The principal rule to start with is that all the key talent in front and behind the camera have to be a nationality of that country. Whatever you do, the directors, the actors, the key crew positions, when I say actors, I mean the, the lead actors, and the producers all have to be from the relevant countries. In fact, you need a producer from each of the countries. With Greg and Bill Kong on board as producers, a Chinese writer-director and all major actors from one of the two countries, the whistleblower qualified. Mark Spicer is our DOP. He's Australian. We had an Australian and a Chinese editor. We had an Australian and Chinese production designer. We had Australian line producer. We had Australian uh, VFX uh, producer. Working under one of these treaties is a game changer. And what you get from the treaty is that you are deemed to be a domestic production for each of the treaty countries. So Australia, China, you're an Australian film, you qualify for the producer offset, you're a local production. From China perspective, you're a China production, you're not subject to any quotas, you're not subject to any import restrictions. Instead of getting 25% film rental, you get 42% film rental, you don't have the restrictions of time that you have for foreign films on TV, etc. And so it fit in perfectly for that, and as I said, I've, I'd probably known Bill at that time for almost 10 years. We had an enormous amount of trust between us and it just worked out really well. And the the Chinese and the Australian crew and talent just, I, I couldn't have asked for more in terms of the synergies that happened. And sort of halfway through it, Bill goes, we're coming back. The whistleblower filmed in Victoria was estimated to bring $40 million to the state's economy. It employed hundreds of local screen workers and trade for over 800 Australian businesses. 
It was filmed at sound stages at Melbourne's Dockland Studios and on location across the state. And there's quite a bit of stuff in Malawi, in Africa, and quite a bit in Beijing. But it was all filmed in Footscray and Hazelwood Power Station and places like that. But there are cultural and social benefits to this sort of co-production as well. It's a film that is in half Mandarin and half English. It's obviously subtitled in Mandarin and English. I would say it's a film made for the Chinese audiences and there are the subtle differences between Chinese audiences and Australian audiences. It's the largest Australian-Chinese co-production ever shot in Australia. And it'll be on Chinese screens. Australian streets, sweeping aerial shots of the Twelve Apostles, pretty, pretty landscapes. For audiences, it's a connection to Australia that positions us geographically and culturally within Asia. For those in the industry, it's proof that we have the locations and the facilities to make big-budget action films. I think Whistleblow is going to prove to many filmmakers in China or producers in China that this is a really great place to make. We have the expertise, we have the skills, particularly more so than in China, as a, again, just because it's such a young industry there. And the Chinese are so welcome in Australia and welcomed. So I think there's lots of... Bill, Bill and I are definitely intending to make more films in Australia under the treaty. These relationships with China change Australia's position as international filmmakers. In terms of America, um, the UK is getting fuller. Uh, the studios want to have somewhere else to make. And I think if the initiatives that we're working on at the moment actually come to fruition, Australia will be a, a source of original content. And that will just mean that more and more um, Hollywood productions will be made in Australia. And as our creative influence in the region grows, so does our local industry. We're hoping that in all the states, the, the governments recognise that and invest in the future and build more, more facilities, so more sound stages. Melbourne needs a bigger one. South Australia needs a bigger one. Uh, Perth could do with a, a big studio. And you can make a film that's, that's basically based anywhere in the world out of Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, Brisbane, anywhere in Australia. There are clear benefits to being a major player in the creative economy on the world stage. Through co-productions, IP generation and as a destination for filmmakers from around the world. There is diplomatic power, money and jobs to be found through supporting creative output. And for creatives, for you, for me, seeing the international potential of our skills having a global mindset when we work or how we generate ideas, this is good for everyone. You've been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, Australia's national screen and broadcast school, dedicated to finding, developing and supporting Australian storytelling talent. Lumina is produced for Afters by Audiocraft with Selena Shannon and Jess O'Callaghan. Production help from Bernadette Nguyen and sound engineering from Tiffany DeMack. Our executive producer is Kate Montague and I'm Fenella Kernerbone. Thank you to everybody who spoke to us for this season of Lumina. You are tops. There are five episodes in all and they're available now. So if you missed any of them, then go back and have a listen using your favourite podcast app. You have been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters. 